Well, 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. Remember, the theme of the book of 1 Samuel is lessons from the heart. And we have been, you know, seeing good things and bad things that are in the heart at times, hearts that are filled with fear, hearts that get fixed, hearts that trust the Lord, hearts that trust themselves. And uh, tonight, we're going to look at David again, David and his 400 men there on the southern, in the southern part of Judah, and the high priest is with them. Remember, Saul has slaughtered the family of the priests, the whole city of Nob. But the question that we, we ask concerning David is, now what? I mean, why did the Lord tell David to go back to the place where he's a fugitive? Uh, why not stay in Moab where it's safe? Well, even though King Saul is ignoring the Lord, the Lord still loves his people, Israel. And God is very interested in their well-being. So when the Philistines invade and Saul does nothing, God sends David into danger to deal with them. So chapter 23, we begin in verse 1. It says, Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Kilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines, and save Kilah. <clears throat> and David, his men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Kilah and fight against the armies of the, and against the, armies of the Philistines? Well, then David inquired of the Lord yet again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David, as him and his men, they're just trying to basically keep on the run from Saul, uh, or at least keep word from Saul uh, of where they are. News comes to David saying the Philistines fight against uh, Kilah. Now, uh, Kilah was a fortified city near the border with the Philistines. It was very exposed to Philistine attack because it was in the lowlands um, there on the, the coastal plain. And so it mentions here that not only did they fight against Kilah, but they ro were robbing the threshing floors. They were plundering and spoiling the, the harvest. Uh, so this was a planned attack by the Philistines during the harvest time to cripple Kilah's economy and their food supply. Now, the, the people of this city would, would never abandon their harvest to be plundered unless they'd lost the battle. They're not just going to leave. And so, with such a, a big threat to this city's survival, the big question is, where is Saul? I mean, he's their king. He's supposed to be looking out for them. He's supposed to be protecting them. Well, apparently, he's too busy wiping out women and children from his own people to rescue Keilah from their real enemies. And with no one to rescue them, David wonders if the Lord brought him and his men back to Israel for this purpose. Look at verse 2. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and smite these Philistines? Now, he is inquiring of the Lord through the Urim and the Thummim. We will see later on how he's able to do that. But it mentions that the Lord answers him and says, says go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. Verse 3, though, notice David's men aren't too keen on this idea when David gets his answer and announces it to him. And David's men said unto him, uh, behold, which, which behold means, um, let's think about this. You know, we, 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 we shouldn't rush into this. 
Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. David, we don't think you've thought this through completely. We haven't had any confrontations with Saul yet, but just being in Judah terrifies us. We're all fugitives. We're all in trouble. How are we going to stand up against a Philistine army? And I love David's heart in verse 4. So David inquired of the Lord yet again. You know, when David had been, his heart had been filled with fear, you remember, a few chapters earlier, he hadn't sought the Lord at all, even though he had the high priest in front of him. He had the high priest in front of him. He lies to him. He doesn't seek the Lord's counsel at all. He comes up with his own plan, and of course, that doesn't go well. He was leaning on his own understanding. But now that he's fixed his heart, he is seeking the Lord about what to do with information that comes his way, even, even if the Lord's direction might put him closer to danger. And yet, even though that's a good place to be, that David is willing to go wherever the Lord wants him to go, even if it's into danger, David's attitude, and when he hears from the Lord, isn't, you know, guns a-blazing, I'm on a mission from God, who are you to question me? When they say, David, have you thought this through? He listens to their concerns, and he humbly asks the Lord for direction a second time, for confirmation. So David inquired of the Lord yet again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, which means it's time to go, David. You did hear correctly the first time. Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. I love this. I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. There is nothing to fear, David. There's nothing for you or your men to be afraid of because I'm going with you. I will deliver them into your hands. You know, when we have this crisis in Israel early on in their history when Moses goes up on the mountain and... um, you know, the, the people, of course, he's up there for 40 days and, and 40 nights, and the people are thinking to themselves, nobody can live that long. You know, we haven't seen him. He's, he's dead. I mean, there's just the whole mountain's on fire. God's killed him. He's dead. And, and so they, they come to Aaron, and, and they say, listen, man, this, this Moses guy who brought us out here, we don't know what's happened to him. So you know, make us, make us a, a God so we can figure out what our next course of action is. And, of course, you know how that goes. That goes very poorly. You know, when, when God, yeah, someone laughed, that was an understatement, yeah. When, when the Lord tells Moses, he says, Moses, get down to your people that you brought out of Egypt because I'm going to wipe them out. And of course, we know that whole interaction between um, Moses and the Lord because the Lord reminds, uh, Moses reminds the Lord, he says, Lord, and not that the Lord needed the reminding, but he reminds the Lord, he says, Lord, these are your people that are called by your name that you brought out of Egypt. They're not my people. And, and if you remember, after the Lord, you know, is gracious with Israel, he still tells Moses, so he says, fine. He says, I will, I won't wipe them out, but I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you, they'll do it again, and I'll have to break forth and wipe them out. He says, I'll send my angel before you. He will defeat the Canaanites and bring you into the promised land, and you can go. And, you know, Moses is just kind of sitting there going, no, no, that, that's not the plan. Like the the promised land isn't the promised land if, if you're not there. That, like, if you, if you don't go, I don't want to go, basically, the, the Moses tells him. Please go with us. And remember, this is your people. He says, if I have found grace in your sight, and you say, I know you by name, if all this is true, then Lord, pardon our sin and go with us. And the Lord, he is moved by um, Moses' prayer, and he says, I'll go with you. And of course, it culminates when Moses is, you know, you strike while the iron's hot, Right? He says, oh, Lord, show me your glory. He's like, I don't want to stop here. I want to see it all. And so the Lord 
you know, hides him in the cleft of the rock. He, he passes by him. As he's passing by, he declares his name to him. He gives Moses the best glimpse of, of God's glory that he can have because he can't see his face and live. So he declares his name, his character, his attributes, who he is, what he's like to him, and then he lets Moses see his afterglow, his hinder parts. And when it's all said and done, Moses falls on his face and he goes, oh, Lord, you're too good. And he thanks the Lord. But right after all that's done, I mean, this is a roller coaster ride for Moses and the nation of Israel. I mean, it could have been one of the most horrible things ever. But after it's all said and done in Hebrews 34, Hebrews, Exodus 34.10, after Moses says, oh, Lord, pardon us, go with us, do all, do all these awesome things, after he sees the glory of God, in verse 10, the Lord says to him, behold, I make a covenant Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The Lord says, you ain't seen nothing yet. God, our God, is an awesome God. There's a reason we sing a song with those lyrics. He is an awesome God, and he does awesome things. You know, in our scripture reading, we read from Psalm 145. I read the first seven verses. And we don't know when David wrote this song. The only thing it mentions is that it calls it David's psalm of praise. It doesn't say a psalm of praise by David. It says it's David's psalm of praise. And and what the rabbis taught was that this was David's favorite song. It was his go-to song when he wanted to just praise the Lord. And this song is awesome because it declares God's awesomeness. He says in verse 1 of Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God, O King. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to, you know, talk about how awesome you are. And I will bless your name forever and ever because there will always be a reason to bless the Lord. Every day will I bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Why? Verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness it says is unsearchable. It means it's beyond our understanding. His greatness is beyond our understanding. In other words, if, if you think you've got God's greatness and awesomeness figured out, keep studying because you haven't reached the top yet. There's still more greatness and more awesomeness to learn about and to see. I love one of the parts of Ephesians 2 where it mentions he's going to be showing us his kindness for all eternity. You know, it's almost like we're going to get to heaven and we're going to go, God, you're so awesome, Lord, you're so great. And he's going to be like, let me show you something else. And you're like, whoa, that's awesome, Lord, you're so awesome, you're so great. And then the next, I don't even know how time's going to be measured then, but whatever, whatever the next day is, whatever that even sounds like in there, he'll be like, let me show you something else. And it'll be like that for all eternity. Great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised. One generation shall praise your works to another. You know, I love telling my kids stories about all that God's done in my life. They'll come to me with something going on. They'll say, 
Dad, I'm, you know, I'm frustrated or whatever. Da, da, da. And I say, let me tell you a story. <laughs> I love telling them about the awesome things God's done in my life. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts because God does mighty things. I will speak of the glorious honor of your majesty and of your wondrous works, your miraculous works. And men, not just me that will say this, men will speak of the might of your awesome acts. The King James says terrible, but it means awesome. And I will declare your greatness. Our God is an awesome God. He is. And he does awesome things. And while David has already seen the Lord help him defeat many foes, this will be the first of many miracles that the Lord will do while David is a fugitive. And so verse 5, back in 1 Samuel 23, it says, So David and his men went to Keilah, and they fought with the Philistines, and they brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now, how did the battle go? Well, first it t- lets us know how bad the situation was because it tells us that after it was over that David drove off, brought away, it actually means he drove off their cattle. In other words, the Philistines were so confident that no one would challenge their victory here that they had moved their cattle into the region. They were settling down. They were, they were letting them graze and ain't no, nobody's gonna challenge us here. But that also indicates to us just how thorough David's victory was. It wasn't even close It was a slaughter, the scripture says. He smote them with a great slaughter, and so David rescued, he saved the inhabitants of Keilah. This will be the first of many situations that forge David's men into an elite fighting force that later on when we get, I think it's in 2 Samuel, where we're going to see lists of David's mighty men. And, And so many of these guys, they come from this group. They were nobody when they came to him. They were fugitives from the law. They weren't anything special. And yet from, from encounter after encounter after encounter that God puts David in, these men are forged into an amazing fighting force. I, I have gone through the tunnels of the ancient city of, of Jebus, in ancient Jerusalem, and they, they, they take you there and they take you to the part where, where Joab likely attacked. The part where David said, hey, listen, anybody can take that city, you know, and he, he said you can be captain over my armies. Because, and Joab, you have to understand Joab. I know I'm getting a little ahead of the story, but Joab is, that, that guy was a thorn in David's side. He fires him like multiple times from being captain of the army. And so this time, you know, David says, I need a new captain. So whoever can get up there and take the, take the top of the city, he'll be my next captain. And Joab's going, where do I start? But you go into this tunnel, I mean, it's not wider than, much wider than my pulpit. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's not that hard to defend, you know? I mean, you, you just put some, a stack of bodies there, you gotta get through them all. And so for Joab to be the guy that's the first one up there waving at David going, hey boss, no need looking for a new captain, I'm it. He, I mean, he's gotta single-handedly just mow down everybody that's in front of him. These guys, they've forged into this amazing amazing, uh, elite fighting force. It's through small encounters like this that God began to do that. Now, before we learn what happens after this victory, the writer explains to us how David could consult the Lord in the first place. Verse 6, And it came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Keilah, 
that he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now, the ephod is the part of the robe that contained the pockets for the Urim and the Thummim. And again, we're not sure what these things were. Some people think they were uh, two stones. One meant yes, one meant no. I don't know if that's true. Um, But whatever they were, um, that's how they would consult the Lord. You could ask the Lord yes or no questions uh, through the high priest, through the use of the Urim and the Thummim. And so remember, Abiathar is the at least the only one we know of, I think some others probably survived, but he's the only priest we know of that survived Saul's uh, slaughter of the city of Nob. And what's interesting is he took the time to go and get the ephod and the Urim and the Thummim to rescue them. That says a lot about Abiathar's character because instead of simply running for his life, you know, he risks his life to carry on the responsibilities of the high priest so that the people of God could hear from their God. Now, with David and his men out coming out into the open like this, news is going to reach Saul. And when it does, the king who couldn't lift a finger to come to his people's aid decides to take advantage of David's exposed position. Look at verse 7. And it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. And so it says in verse 8 that Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. I love what David Goodzik said in light of Saul's comments here. He says, it was true that God led David to Keilah, and it was true that this exposed David to Saul's attack. But it was not true that God had delivered David into Saul's hand. That is an absurd notion. How did Saul get this twisted mindset? God delivered David into his hand? Has he forgotten the words of Samuel that the Lord has rejected him as king? God doesn't deliver anybody into Saul's hand anymore. Has he forgotten his sin that he's never repented of? And yet, Saul truly believes he's the one in the right. How is it possible for a person to get to that place? Turn over to 2 Timothy with me. I want to just share a contrasting section of Scripture with you. When Paul is speaking to Timothy, he, remember he's teaching Timothy how to be a pastor uh, because the first letter's written because he, he anticipates that his time away from Timothy is going to be longer than he thinks. So that's what First Timothy's written. Second Timothy, he knows he's not going to get out of jail this time. And so he, he wants, these are his final words to young pastor Timothy. And as he's contrasting, you know, Timothy, this is how you need to be. Don't be like the, the false teachers. He says something very interesting here in verses 12 and 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says in verse 12 of 2 Timothy, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But, verse 13, in contrast to the godly, evil men and seducers, they'll wax worse and worse. And here it is. Deceiving and being deceived. We must never forget the book of 1 Samuel's proximity to the book of Judges. The prevailing theme during the time of the period of the Judges was every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the theme of the book of Judges. And, and, and that is Saul's mindset, you know? You know, I know I'm right. I, I know that God told me I'm wrong, but I know I'm right. And so I'm going to just keep moving forward with my own way, my own understanding, because I know I'm right. And so somehow he convinces himself that David is in the wrong and that God has finally gotten on board with his plan. 
We see Saul do this over and over again where he thinks, oh God, good, finally, you're on board with my plan. And that's what he's thinking here. And I might be saying, how do I stop from getting there? How do I protect myself from getting to that place? And Paul tells Timothy here. He says, these, you, know, you have those who will live godly in Christ Jesus, they're going to suffer persecution. I know it doesn't sound exciting, but that's the truth of how it works out. Evil men, they're just going to get worse and worse. They're going to deceive others and be deceived themselves. But you, Timothy, don't do that. How do you protect yourself from that? You continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. What is the things that he's learned? Verse 16. Verse 15 mentions the Holy Scriptures, and then Paul says, all Scripture, verse 16, is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. It's for our good, for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, you know, for for that rebuke, for correction, you know how to get right, and then instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. The Word of God is profitable for that so that the man of God may be perfect, means mature, thoroughly equipped unto all good works, protected from these types of things. This was something that Saul had not done. You know, the Lord said, there's going to come a day when you, when you uh, will, will make a king. And, and I'm going to lay down some, some bylaws for that. And, and of course, the Lord you know, says, hey, he, he's the king of my choosing. And then he, he puts down some things that the king can't do. Don't, do. don't multiply wives. Don't go down to Egypt to buy horses. You know, don't think there's something else, but I can't remember. Don't multiply riches. But then he says that what he should, must do, he must write a copy. He personally must write his own copy of the law. And he needs to read it regularly. Saul didn't do that. Surely there's no way he could have done that because if he did do that, he would read things about like thou shalt not kill. (laughs) You know, thou shalt love the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He would read things that would be clearly in contradiction to how he's being a king. And as a result, it would protect him from being deceived. But as often as the case when I deceive myself, I just look at things in the natural, not looking at the Word of God. And so his mindset is, ah, he's shut in. He's, he's physically confined to the city. He's in his town and has gates and bars now. He's not wandering throughout the land. And so verse 8, Saul summons his entire army to crush David. It says he called all the people together to war, every tribe, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. An entire army to crush a few hundred men? What is Saul doing here? Well, you see, Saul wants to make a spectacle of this. See, he's going to come down with the entire army as if he's going to attack the Philistines that he'd heard had, you know, done all this to Keilah. But finding David in the city instead, and the Philistines already gone, he'll divert his army to threaten the people of Keilah with destruction if they don't turn David in. Look at verse 9, because David... He knows that's what's going to happen. Verse 9, and David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. In other words, when word reaches David that Saul's bringing the entire army, he sees through the charade. He knows Saul has no intention of fighting the Philistines. You know? and, and so, the, now in a normal situation like this, okay, you know, hey, David, David, they got, they got news. What's going on? Saul's bringing the whole army down to fight the Philistines. Yeah, that's not why he's coming down. What would you normally do? What's the normal thing to do? You run, right? 
I mean, it seems like the obvious decision. You, you get out. Get out of Dodge. And yet, notice what David does. When he knew this, it says, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring hither the ephod. David seeks the Lord about what to do next. And then said David, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. I've been here before. He says, will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Instead of making up a lie like he did with Ahimelech, he asks the Lord, he goes, are they going to turn me in? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? I mean, is, am I understanding this thing correctly? Is this how it's going down? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech you, tell your servant. And the Lord answers the second question, not the first. The Lord said he will come down. So David asks again, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said they will. They will deliver you up. You know, sometimes I hear people criticize prayers that inform God about a situation because they'll say, well, God already knows the situation. You don't need to inform him about it. He's God. And while logically that might seem to make sense, you will never find any such critique in Scripture when people pray that way. Never. Why is that? Well, the reason you find many prayers like this one, the David prayers, where he informs the Lord, where God surely already knows the information, the reason you'll find a critique is because prayer in its most basic level is simply talking to the Lord. It's talking with the Lord. And just because the Lord knows everything already doesn't mean he doesn't want to interact with us. I think we have to be really careful of saying things the Bible doesn't say, even if they seem to make sense sometimes. I have found that sometimes I don't know what to pray yet. I just need to talk to the Lord. And I'll tell him over and over again what's going on. <laughs> and I don't think the Lord's going, ah, Gabriel, another one, acting as if I don't know everything. All right, go ahead and tell me your sob story, Will. Yeah, yeah I know, yeah. Oh, did that happen next? Oh, who would have thought that? <laughs> I mean, that, that's not the Lord, you know? My kids, they tell me stuff, you know, for example, the, 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 my, me and Bev, are, are you anybody, any parents here? You, you talk, right? Like you talk about your kids, right? Like you, I hope you interact. <laughs> you know, like, we don't like hide things from each other, you know? It's, it's not like, you know, Johnny, you know, fell and, you know, and broke his foot, you know, and a couple days later, I'm like, hey, what's going on with your foot? Oh, I broke it. Didn't mom tell you? No, we don't talk about that stuff. We talk, you know, and, and so, you know, I'll say, hey, how did the day go? And she'll tell me, you know, and, and, and she'll ask me how did, when she's gone, I'm watching the kids, how'd it go? I lived, I survived, you know. <laughs> we talk about it, and, but sometimes the kids will come to me and they'll say, hey, dad, guess what happened yesterday? I already know. I already know. I don't care. I love seeing their face. I love seeing their smile as they're telling me the exciting thing they went through and that they decided to tell me about it, that it was important for them to come tell me about it. Sometimes I think that we get this idea of God's might and power and majesty that we, 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 we somehow feel the need to like, you know, be like the disciples with Jesus, you know? You know, the, the kids are crying to come to Jesus and they're like, get away from here. Don't you know the master is busy? And the Lord's like, who, who are you guys? I don't need anyone to protect me from children. Let the little children come to me. 
I think sometimes we can be like them with, with, with nitpicky things like that that the Scripture has nothing to say about. I'm not, I'm not talking about speaking when you know, if we're, I'm doing something wrong and the Scripture says, hey, don't do that. That's different. But sometimes we have this idea like we've got to protect God's sovereignty somehow or we've got to protect God's majesty somehow because if we don't, people are going to run roughshod all over him. I am perfectly convinced that the Lord can handle himself just fine without my help. That he's not bothered by so many of the things that may seem to bother us at times. Well, David, he had seen what Saul was willing to do to those who helped David. And so he says, is he coming down to destroy the city? The Lord says, yep. Are they going to turn me in? Yep. And so verse 13, then David and his men, which were about 600, they arose and departed out of Keilah and went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah, and he forbear to go forth. A couple things to note here. Where did the extra 200 guys come from? Last time we heard, it was only 400. Now, now, now granted, this is not, not the best, like, recruitment policy or, like, recruitment advertisement, you know? Hey, come join David's army. What, what, where, where are we staying? What's the lodging like? Don't know. You've got to find out every day. Well, well, well what, what, are, what are the perks? We don't have any. You're just kind of on the run. In fact, if you join us, you're, you're kind of an illegal at that point. How did 200 men, more men, join David after he goes, I mean, I mean, he's not even in town anymore. He's in Moab. And it's almost like he gets back to Judah, and there's like, you know, a line sitting out in the desert somewhere going, we're here to sign up for David's whatevers. 600 now. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us where they come from, but David's army is clearly growing. And I love what it says here. They went with us wherever they could go. It Literally, in the Hebrew, it means they wandered where they wandered. They went where they could go, wherever they could go with no danger, which means they had no clear destination at this point. And you know, following the Lord may seem like that sometimes. <laughs> There's not exactly a, de- a defined destination. You know, you just know the next step. Like, you know, wh- where do we go now? Here. Okay, well, I see that, but where does here lead to? I'll tell you when you get there. The Lord doesn't always give us the long-term plan. In fact, I, I find the Lord very rarely gives me the long-term plan. He gives me the next step plan. So while following the Lord may seem like that sometimes, it's Okay as long as you're taking the next step that he's told you to take. But they escape. And it was told Saul that David was escaped, that he had fled from Keilah, and he forbear, that Saul forbear to go forth. Saul stopped whatever you know, mobilization he had planned. You know, the army never leaves, and it exposes Saul's ruse that he wasn't really going to fight the Philistines. David was right. He was just coming to get David. So where does David end up? Well, verse 14. And David abode or settled down in the wilderness in strongholds, and he remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, when we read the word wilderness, um, I don't know about you, but I, I usually kind of think of, uh, you know, um, kind of like uh, if, if you drive out in like the west side of Texas and there's just nothing like an I-10 for all those miles, that's kind of how I perceive the wilderness. Um, but but the, 
over there, the wilderness, particularly back then, not so much these days down south, uh, because it's much more barren down south these days. But back then, um, they were like forests. There was a lot, of, a lot of trees. It was a deserted area. That's why they call it a wilderness. It just means a large tract of, of, of sparsely inhabited land. It doesn't have a lot of sustenance, so people hadn't settled down there. So David and his men, they settled down in, it says, the strongholds of this area where people aren't living. Uh, The word strongholds means the rim rock. Uh, These were secure locations high on mountaintops or hilltops. So David's up on the high ground where people aren't living. It's probably not easy to live up there, but at least it's free from danger at this point. And it tells us it's in a particular mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. Uh, Ziph was uh, southeast of Keilah, probably about 15 miles. Uh, It's near the middle of the Dead Sea, but not up against the Dead Sea. So, basically, we don't know how they got there. They wandered around for a bit while trying to stay undetected by Saul, and eventually they end up in these southern hills of Judah. But their disappearance doesn't keep Saul from searching. Note, it says at the end, and Saul sought him every day. Doesn't a king have more important things to do than look for one guy every day? Saul is consumed. But God delivered him not into his hand. <laughs> I love that. Saul says, Ah, oh, the Lord's delivered me into your hand. The Lord's like, No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Despite all Saul's efforts, God did not deliver him into his hand. If God be for me, what does the scripture say? Who can be against me, right? It doesn't matter how powerful that enemy is or how much energy our enemy expends against us. David and his men are as safe as they can possibly be right now despite this awful situation because unless the Lord delivers them up, Saul will not catch them. Verse 15, as Saul is searching, apparently one of his searches brings him right next to David. Verse 15, and David saw, he became aware of is what that means, that Saul was come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. So Saul was currently searching in this region of Judah. So he's close to David, even though he hasn't found David yet. And David is in uh, this, it mentions this in a wood. It means a forest on a hill. David's in this forest on a hill, and he notices Saul and whoever, whatever troops Saul's brought to the region uh, to search for David. Um, but what is so cool about this is while Saul can't seem to find David, somehow Jonathan does. Look at verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. And he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you, and you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto you. And that also Saul my father knows. And they too made a covenant before the Lord, and David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went to his house." What an interesting encounter here. Um, I don't know if, if Jonathan came out to look for David at the Lord's prompting, and that's how it doesn't tell us that. But it mentions here that somehow he found him, and it says that he strengthened David's hand in God. Now, the, the hand is an important object in Scripture. It, it speaks of the, the force and the ability which is necessary to complete a task. You know, when it talks about God's going to bring them out by his strong right hand, you know, it's referring to the fact that God has all the ability, all the strength, all the force necessary to do what he says he will do when he's saying that. And so David has been given a task by the Lord. 
And so when Jonathan finds David somehow, uh, he gives him some extra strength to finish the task that God has set him on. And how does Jonathan do that? Well, it tells us in verse 17. It says three things. He says, fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you, and you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto you, and that my Saul, Saul my, also Saul my father knows. He says, fear not, which you don't say to somebody unless they're scared. David was frightened. And when someone is frightened, they need some extra strength. But Jonathan doesn't lend it to David just by saying, hey man, don't be afraid. He says, fear not, but then he gives David three reasons why. He says, number one, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. My father shall not find you. My father might be putting the energy necessary, his hand, he might be putting the energy necessary to accomplish his plan to kill you, but he will not be successful. It is so important to remind a fearful person, if you have a friend or a family member or someone you come into contact with that knows the Lord and they are frightened, it is so important to remind them that the enemy will not prevail. They need to know that. It doesn't matter how hard our enemy is working against them or how much it looks like the enemy is going to defeat them. They will not. We already know how the story ends for us because the Lord tells us that we win. Amen? It's so important to tell someone that. Listen, however this plays out, you will be victorious. The second thing he tells him, why he should not be afraid, is he says, you shall be king over Israel. My father shall not find you, but you shall be king over Israel. God will keep his promise to you, David. The second thing when you're trying to minister to someone who's afraid is it's so important to remind a fearful person of the promises that God has made to them in Scripture. You got to tell them and say, listen, this is the promise that God has made to you. You know, Jesus confronted Martha when she was going through a crisis. She said, my brother's gone. And Jesus said to her, he said, you'll see your brother again, he'll rise again. And she said, that's not what I need to hear right now, Jesus. She said, I know he'll rise again at the last day. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he is dead, yet shall he live. He that believes in me shall never die. And then he, he just puts her right on the spot. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Martha's got a choice at that point in time. Do I believe in Jesus' promise right now? That I'm gonna be all right, that my brother's gonna be all right? And that death doesn't exist for the believer. That truly, my last ragged breath here is the beginnings of the first ones there. When you're afraid, it's important to know that and many other promises that God gives to us. You know, now to be able to do that for somebody, you gotta know what the scripture says, right? <laughs> you gotta know what God's promises are. <laughs> You know, you just kind of saying, hey, I have hope for the future may give someone some good feels, but God's word is what gives us true strength, God's promises. Third thing that Jonathan says to strengthen David when he's afraid is he says, and I shall be next to you. You're gonna be king and I'm gonna be right by your side. Now what's interesting is God did not promise that to Jonathan or to David. 
Um, so there is no failure on God's part when that actually doesn't happen, because that does not happen. In fact, unless I'm really missing something, uh, as I was looking through the Scriptures, I believe this is the last time that Jonathan and David see one another. This is it. This does not happen, even though Jonathan says, I, I'll be right next to you, buddy. You're going to be king, and I'll be your right-hand man. I'll be helping you the whole way. So even though that doesn't happen, that doesn't mean God broke his promise, because God didn't say that he would do that. But, but, how does it strengthen David when he's afraid? Well, it communicates Jonathan's commitment to David. He says, listen, my dad might be hunting you, but I'm not out here hunting you, David. You still have friends. You're not alone. And I'm going to stick with you to the very end. And it is so important when you're trying to minister to someone who is fearful that you let them know you will stick with them to the very end. You know, the scripture that talks about how it says that the Lord is the glory and the lifter of our head. Back in that culture, if you saw someone with their head down and you lifted their head up and you said, why is your head down? What's going on? You were telling them, not just, because you ever do that, somebody, hey, how you doing? And then they unload and you're like, whoa, I just was being polite. I really didn't want to know. <laughs> I didn't want to know all that. I was just being nice, you know? You know? The Lord never does that, you know? I mean, when you hear the Lord's voice, he's like, hey, Will, how you doing? It's never, I'm like, oh, Lord, let me tell you, it's a mess. The Lord's like, oh, well, you don't understand. I've got all this stuff going on in the Middle East, and there's a virus, a pandemic, Will. I mean, really, I was just saying hi. The Lord's not like that. When he lifts our head up and says, how you doing? What's going on? He will see us through to the very end because he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. But we need to be that friend to someone as well. If we lift up their head, you look terrified. What's going on? We need to let them know we're going to stick with them to the very end. And I love what he tells David. He goes, and that also Saul my father knows. Well, what does, what does Saul know? What is he referring to here? You know, is this the idea that David would be king or that Jonathan would choose David over his own father? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 20, um, when David has a chance to kill Saul and does not, he says, Saul says to David in verse 20 of chapter 24, and now behold, I know well that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So we already know that Saul knows this. He knows that God has picked David to be his replacement. In his heart of hearts, even though he's deceived himself, if he can get through all that junk that is pushing all that truth down, suppressing all that truth, he knows that God has anointed David to be his replacement. That being said, I think David, though, Jonathan, though, is revealing to David that he told his dad about their covenant. I think that's what he's telling David here because that's the very last thing that Jonathan says. He goes, and I shall be next unto you, and that my father knows right well. I think they sent David, I, I told him, I told him about our covenant. I told him that I'm not going to kill you. When I got back and he asked me, why didn't you bring David with you? I told him why. I said, we're in covenant together. I'm not going to do any harm to him and he's not going to do any harm to me, Dad. I don't care what you say. And what's interesting, I think the encouraging part that Jonathan's sharing this is because he says, my dad didn't kill me when I told him that, David. That knowing that Saul didn't kill Jonathan despite having that information would be an extra comfort to David. He wouldn't have to worry about his friend. In other words, in all this he's saying, David, God's brought you this far. He's brought us this far. 
He's going to see us through to the end. And so verse 18, they decide to settle it. and says they too made a covenant before the Lord. And so then David stayed in the wood and Jonathan went to his house. What kind of covenant do they make here? Do they just reaffirm their old covenant? It doesn't say that. It seems to be some kind of new covenant, and if the language here is any indication, then it's probably a covenant that they would govern side by side when God made David king. And so with that done, I love David doesn't flee anywhere because he knows Saul's not going to find him. And Jonathan goes back home, which means Saul didn't find him because if Jonathan went home, it means Saul went home. So Jonathan was right. Saul did not find David. You know, wouldn't you like to have a best friend like Jonathan? What an awesome guy. You know, he must have been the best friend in the world to have. How could you leave a conversation with him and not be convinced about staying on the right path? And like I said earlier, though, the sad part is I think this is the last time Jonathan and David are together. So here's the question. Why didn't the Lord let Jonathan and David rule together? Why, why is this it for their friendship when it's so good, it's so mutually encouraging? Why did God let Jonathan die in the final battle with the Philistines that took Saul's life? Why do these two friends never get to fulfill their dream? The Bible doesn't say. But know this. While losing a friend like this hurts, while seeing dreams unfulfilled stings, the Lord knows what he's doing. Trust him like David and Jonathan did despite this not going the way that they had hoped. Well, verse 19. Then came up the Ziphites. So this is after David doesn't go anywhere and Saul goes back home. Then came up the Ziphites to Saul to Gabeah, saying, Does not David hide himself with us in the strongholds in the wood and in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. Uh, the city of Ziph sits on a massive flattened hill which gives a, a panoramic vision of the region, including the area where David and his men are hiding, up high. They would be able to see that from Ziph. So apparently they notice some of David's men moving around and they come to tell Saul. And they tell him, we know exactly where he is. They say he's in this hill of Hakila, which is on the south. Jeshimon is actually two words, the desert or the wilderness. So basically just saying, you know, we know where he's at. He's in this specific hill in the desert. And, and it doesn't tell us what they plan to do to lure David out to catch him, but they are clearly siding with Saul in this conflict, which Saul again misinterprets as God's blessing. Look at verse 21. And Saul said, blessed be ye of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. My own, my, all my leaders don't care about me, but you've had compassion on me. The word compassion means to show kindness to someone who's in an, in an unfavorable situation or a difficult situation or a dangerous situation. How is Saul the king in an unfavorable situation here? How is he the one who's in a difficult or dangerous situation here? The only true difficulty or danger that Saul is in comes from the Lord. No one else is out to get him, certainly not David. And yet he paints this picture of David that isn't true to get people to favor him. And in doing so, Saul adds lies and slander to his sins. And yet, even though they propose this plan, Saul is not ready to go forward with it. He says in verse 22, go, I pray you, prepare yet, which means go ahead with this plan of yours, 
and know, which means but keep gathering intel, and see his place where his haunt is. Uh, it's a complicated phrase in the Hebrew. Basically, it means find out where David and his men have made their base. And then he says this, and who has seen him there. In other words, talk to the people who have actually seen him. Don't just listen to word coming down the line. Find the people who actually had eyes on him. And, 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 and see, therefore, he says, for it is told to me that he deals very subtly. The Fraser means he deals clever, clever. It's doubled in the Hebrew for emphasis. He is very clever. He is a smart guy, and I'm not just going to go based on because somebody saw somebody who saw somebody who saw David. Go and find out exactly where he's at. Confirm it. Talk to the people who had eyes on him. Get me perfect intel here. See, therefore, and take knowledge. The phrase see, therefore, means because he's so clever, you need to make sure this intel's correct before I come down. Take knowledge of all the lurking places, all his hideouts, and come you again to me with the certainty, and then I will go with you. And it shall come to pass, if he be in that land, that I will search him out, out throughout all the thousands of Judah. So Saul, he says, I like this plan, but, because David slipped out of my grip a few times, he, he says he's hesitant to support the plan until they have harder intel. He says, if you can give me that, and you can prove to me that David's there, I will chase him all over Judah if I have to. And so, the people of Ziph that betray David's location, they're good with this plan. Verse 24, they arose and they went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men, they were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain in the south of Jeshimon, just like where they, you know, they, they, the people of Ziph said where he was. They weren't on the mountain at this time. They were down in the plain, but it's the same general area. In other words, there's no new intel to gather. David is exactly where they said he was because he doesn't know anyone's coming for him. So they tell Saul, and this time Saul does come down. Verse 25, Saul also and his men went to seek him, and they told David. So now David finally gets the news. Up to this point, David has no clue there are plots against him that the men of Ziph are betraying him. But when Saul's army moves into the region, he finally gets news. So David, it says, it was told David, wherefore he came down into a rock, literally it means from the clifftop stronghold, so they had gone back up. Now they got to get out of there because they do not want to be a sitting duck up there for, for Saul to pick off. And so they come down and they abode in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, David moves his men to the lower region, when at some point Saul finds some proof of David's presence, because this time he doesn't give up. He pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And, and this time, Saul actually outsmarts David. Look at verse 26. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. So David is kind of in, a, in this kind of slow retreat, moving away from Saul's troops, and there's this hilltop, this mountain in, in between them. And so Saul decides to cut him off. He's gonna, David's going around this side of the mountain, and Saul decides, I'm going to come around this side and beat him to the exit point. And Saul does. Look here. And David made haste to get away. It says for fear of Saul. That's the phrase for fear is not in the original language, so I, and I have no clue why the translators added that phrase. He's not afraid. He's just hurrying. He says he made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men compassed David. They had gotten him surrounded because they got to the exit first, and his men were round about to capture them. When, when David realizes he's, he's been beat to this destination, he and his men, they begin to hightail it in the opposite direction. But, but there's not a lot of hope in this. Saul's got enough men, he can surround him from everywhere. 
And so because Saul has more men and because Saul knows where David is now, I mean, David is done for. There is no way Saul's going to let up at this point. There's nowhere that David can get away. But like Jonathan said, the Lord made David a promise. And the Lord is on David's side. Verse 27. But there came a messenger unto Saul saying, Hasty, which means you must come at once. They're, they're, they're with no delays. You can't waste another minute. Hasty and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. The word invaded there means to make a sudden dash. The Philistines made like a blitzkrieg type of advance, a lightning fast strike into Israeli territory. And with Saul's army down in the south, there was no one to answer it. Saul has no option but to turn around and to head up to confront this invasion and therefore let David escape. Wherefore, verse 24, Saul returned from pursuing after David and he went against the Philistines. And therefore, they called that place Selah Hamalekoth, which means the rock of separation. The idea is that there was all there was between Saul and David was this hill and, and, and David was trapped. And yet, that was enough. Because the Lord had something in place already that was going to keep Saul from sealing the deal, from closing the door. And so, David went up from there and he dwelt in the strongholds at En Gedi. En Gedi is much farther east than the wilderness of Ziph. Uh, this is a major oasis area along the western side of the Dead Sea. It's about 35 miles from Jerusalem, so very far from Saul. It has date trees and tons of natural springs there. This is the best possible place to hide out if you have nowhere to go. And so there's David in En Gedi, and he's safe for now. So, David, at every step of the way, he sought the Lord, right, in this whole chapter. Even though it got scary, right? Every step of the way, he sought the Lord. So here's the question. Was David's trusting heart rewarded? Yes, it was. But that doesn't mean it was all roses and lollipops. Now, here's the truth. If you have a trusting heart, a heart that's trusting the Lord, that's okay. That's okay. Because God won't break his promise, even when it looks ugly. And when your heart is trusting in the Lord, even when he exposes you to danger, it's the safest place you can be. Amen? Amen. As the worship team comes on up and we get ready to close, I just want to leave you with Psalm 23 because it's so important to remember this song that David wrote later on in life. In Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I won't lack anything. Oh, I might lack some, some things maybe I wish I had, but I won't lack anything I need. I won't really lack anything. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Do you know why sheep have to be led by still waters? They're skittish. They frighten easily, particularly water, running water. So you've got to lead them beside waters that's not moving. Can't lead them to a like a, a, a brook or a stream because they, they tend to freak out. He restores my soul. David had so many moments when the Lord had to restore his soul. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me. Here it is. In the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. David's saying, you're the one that brought me all this way, through all this mess, and put a crown on my head. And my cup runs over. And so David declares, at the end of all this, surely goodness and mercy, God's goodness and his loving kindness, his loyal love, shall follow me all the days of my life. And after that, it gets better. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's stand. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd and you are a good shepherd. And even then, when we're going through those dark valleys, Lord, that look like they might be death, we thank you that you're leading us, Lord, and that we don't have to fear. No evil, Lord, because you are with us. Lord, maybe if there's someone out there tonight who's afraid, they're struggling, Lord, will you remind them Lord, that you've made promises, that there are people around them that won't leave them, Lord. You haven't left them friendless. And Lord, will you encourage them with the truth that the enemy will not prevail over them. The gates of hell won't prevail against your church, you said, so the enemy can't prevail against them. In the end, they will win, and they will dwell in your house forever, come what may here. Encourage us with these truths, Lord, we pray, that we might have trusting hearts just like David had. In Jesus' name, amen.